0: I want you to take your seats, if you would, and take out your Bible and open to Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7, and uh, I'll say this, it's really good for me uh, to be back at Brentwood this week. I've been spending a lot of time up in in Nashville helping to prepare that core group for launch in August, and it's been amazing to watch God's hand at work. In fact, I'll tell you a quick story. We have been meeting at Aiken Elementary, which is right near near, uh, Hillsborough Village, just a couple of blocks off of Hillsborough Village. And it's been a wonderful uh, place for us to meet. Great relationships uh, there. We meet on Sunday afternoons, but they couldn't accommodate us on Sunday mornings when we launched. And so since January, we've been looking for uh, another facility, another location uh, to meet when we launch in, in August, and that's not been an easy process. Uh, there's, there's not much available for uh, a group of adults and kids on, on a Sunday morning. Uh, the, the economy's great, the real estate market's great. It's not been easy for us, and and so uh, two of our guys, in fact, uh, Steve Lang and Jonathan Phipps, who've been heading that that charge, have have looked at, been to, talked to more than 30 different locations. I bet we've thought about or called on or checked out online more than 100. It's been a wild uh, process for us. And and not very long ago, we finally got our foot in the the door at, at this elementary school in In 12 South called Waverly Belmont. And uh, Waverly Belmont is a a completely renovated, actually is our new addition uh, at the school as well. It's just been reopened, was there for many, many years. It's been closed for several years and now just reopened this past year. And so we developed a relationship with the principal there and we're pretty excited about going in there. Well, the principal about six weeks or so ago decided that she was going to take a job as a superintendent in East Tennessee, and and so we we were back in limbo a bit, Uh, still knew a a person or two there, and so still hoping to get our foot back in the door, but not sure, and a new principal was not going to be named until June, and uh, the new rental contract doesn't come out until July, which is a month before launch, so here we are, praying like crazy, open-handed, if we can't launch, we can't launch, but uh, we were where we were. Uh, Good news is this, that the new principal was named. The principal at Aiken, where we've been meeting, knew the new principal at Waverly Belmont, sent her a note, talked to her on the phone, and we got a text just uh, in the last 10 days or so that said, talk to Susan, you're all set, from the principal at Aiken. So we are thrilled (laughs) that that worked out. I'll tell you this as well. Um, uh, We just found out Thursday that that, uh, the Metro School Board has decided not to take in any new tenants in any of their schools going forward. Can you believe that? So we're just in under the wire, if you can believe that. It's God's providence at work. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so excited to be back in Esther and back here today is because it's here that we see God's invisible hand of providence at work. We can't see it with our own eyes, but it is surely there in the same way that it has been for us in Nashville. Now, here's where we are in the story. And I'm going to review this uh, this morning, take a minute to set the context, because We're coming today to the climax of the story. So we need to see the story and how it builds to the point we are today in Esther chapter seven. So we know this, we have a king who's crazy. He's all about himself. He's willing to dismiss the queen because she won't do whatever he wants her to do and no one challenges the queen. So we're searched for a new queen. Hundreds of virgins come to the palace. The, the king chooses from this group of young women, and he chooses Esther the Jew. Only he doesn't know that Esther is a. Jew. And Esther's uncle, Mordecai, has been involved in this process. He spends a lot of time at the city gate. And Mordecai heard about a plot to assassinate the king, which he foiled. He, he didn't allow it to happen. He let the king know. And, and so Mordecai is in the good graces of, of the king as well. So we have Esther and we have Mordecai. Now, the only problem with Mordecai is that because he worships God, he will not bow down in the city gate to the king's number two man. That is Haman won't bow to him. That makes Haman mad. Haman is not only mad at him, he wants to kill him. He decides that he's going to destroy all the people of Israel, all the Jews living in captivity in Persia. So Haman's mad. Now, of course, this is an incredible problem, big problem for Esther as well. Why? She's a Jew. Esther talks to Mordecai. Esther asks Mordecai to get the group to pray together for her. And Esther decides to take the greatest risk that you could take in the kingdom of King Ahasuerus. And that risk is to enter the king's court unannounced and uninvited. If you enter the king's court uninvited, you die. That's the law. You you die unless the king extends the golden scepter to you and he does to Esther. And Esther, what is your request Esther? Esther says I'd like to invite you to dinner. You and Haman to dinner. So they they come to dinner of course at the dinner Esther invites them to a second banquet, a second dinner the following night. The king likes food, so he's good. Haman, the number two guy, is overjoyed to be in the presence alone with the king and queen. So he he is thrilled. He leaves dinner. He goes through the city gate, and there's dead gum Mordecai standing there again. Not worshiping Haman when he walks by. So Haman goes home, now he's really ticked. And he decides with his wife, he says, I'm gonna build a gallows and I'm gonna hang Mordecai on the gallows tomorrow morning. Now it's late at night, everybody goes to bed, but the king can't sleep, right? King cannot sleep. And so he calls to one of his attendants and he says, hey, will you read to me the book of records so that I can go to sleep? Surely that would put anyone to sleep. So the attendant comes, and he opens the book of records, the chronicles, to the page with Mordecai on it, where it talks about Mordecai foiling the plot to kill the king. He saves the king. The king asks the attendant, has anything been done for Mordecai? The attendant says, no, well, we got to do something about that. So early in the morning, Haman comes into the king's court. Of course, Haman can do that because he's the number two in the empire, and Haman has come in to the king's court court to ask for the king's permission to go ahead that morning and hang Mordecai on the gallows. Haman doesn't get those words out before the king looks at him and he says, I got a great job for you today. I'm going to need you to go get Mordecai and parade him around the city in royalty, declaring how esteemed and honored he should be for saving the king. Can you imagine Haman's face in the court? not good. Haman goes, he does that all day long, goes home to change for dinner. Now we're arriving at the second banquet, the dinner with Esther, the king, and with Haman. That's where we'll be today. Now I want to ask you this, can you feel the pace of the story? It's just like, Now, I told it in that way, but this story is an incredible story. The pace is building, the tension is building, and it's right here at the second banquet that everything comes to a head, okay? Chapter 7, I'm going to read all 10 verses, beginning in verse 1. Please follow along with me as I read. Here's what happens. Now, the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen, and the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. For the trouble would would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would presume to do thus? Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine. He went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. Now, when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, will he assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king said, behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai and the king's anger subsided. Now, there are lots of ways to look at this chapter. I've chosen to do it in four parts and it's very simple, but I think it might be helpful to keep this outline in our minds as we go through it. Here it is, Esther's request and the king's response to Esther. Haman's request and the king's response to Haman. Okay, that's how we'll look at the text. Two requests, two responses. Of course, Esther's request is first. And one of the things that just jumps immediately off the page to us is how deliberate Esther is in making her request she invites him to the first dinner and then to the second make sure we include Haman then to serve and prepare a meal for the king and for the king's number 2 good food and good wine she carefully selects her words she's really thinking it through how should i go about making my request and so she bestows honor and esteem upon the king if it would be pleasing to you. And if I might find favor to you, by the way, this is the third time she's used that refrain. For two days, she creates this sense of anticipation and the king is eager to help, isn't he? Whatever you request, queen. Uh, Even to half of the kingdom, I will be glad to give it to you. And then finally, when it comes time to make her formal request, Esther appeals to the king's emotions, doesn't she? Look at verse three, the end of verse three. Here's what she says. Uh, Found found favor, pleases the king. Let my life be given. O king, my life is in danger. And my people are set to be destroyed. O king, I need you to intervene. Of course, that creates this sense of disturb in the king's heart. He's angry because of what has happened to his queen. Now, Esther's masterful here. Absolutely masterful. She's not manipulative. She doesn't deceive in any way or coerce, but she is wide, wise and she is shrewd. And she is about something more than just good for herself. Certainly this would be good for Esther, but she is about something that would be good for all her people. And the reason that she is so shrewd about her petition before the king is because this is so delicate, okay? See, she is about to accuse Haman of a heinous act without incriminating the king who approved of it. See, this is very delicate. You feel the tension in this. This is one courageous woman. And it's because of that tension that the king responds the way he does. He's angry. Who could do this? And then when he discovers that it's Haman who is behind this, the king has to go for a walk. Now, that is not in keeping with the impulsive nature of this king. So why would he need to go for a walk in the garden? Well, it's because the king has a major problem. The king has not thought about the ramifications of his decree. He has signed this decree with his signet ring. What is he to do? If Esther is killed because of the decree, then it's an embarrassment to his authority. His authority might be undermined. He can't have that, but how then can he, in turn, go and condemn Haman for something that he? approved. The king is stuck until Haman gives him an out. The text says in verse 6, you might look at it again, when Esther pointed the finger at Haman, he peed his pants. (laughs) That's in the text. He was terrified. So when the king leaves, Haman rushes to the couch. Esther's reclining on to make his request to beg for his life. Now, this is not good that he did this, but maybe not in the way that you think. See, in, in this period of history, uh, in the Persian empire it is highly, highly unlikely that his move to the couch was in any way, um, sexual or physical assault. That, that is likely not the case at all. This is law breaking of a different kind. You, you see, there was a law that stated that that no man could ever be alone in a room with any member of the king's harem, okay? So when the king departs for the garden, it is Haman's responsibility to exit the room as well. Haman would know that well. Now, the, the, the law continues, there's more than that. The law also says that even when there's a group of men and women in a room in the palace, That that no man can be within seven steps of any member of the harem. Haman is on the same couch. What Haman does here is not only illegal, it's a serious lapse in judgment. No one would challenge the king's authority in this way. And so when the king comes back in and sees Haman on the couch with his queen, his problem is solved. It's solved. Haman has broken the law and Haman must be punished. This is a perfect distraction to all that lies beneath the surface with the decree. King's problem is solved. So, Right here, as the winds of God's providence begins to blow, the story is turned upside down, isn't it? This is the great reversal in this great story. Mordecai and Esther live and Haman hangs on his own gallows. Wow, what a climax. What poetic justice in the story. Now, I want us to think about this story in two parts. Two parts to the story. You know, all along the way, we've been talking about the overall theme of the book. Veiled providence, visible faith. And and that tension that's held throughout the book, that reality is certainly evident here. So God is behind the scenes working, aligning all these moving parts, characters and circumstances together. He's preserving the nation of Israel, from by means of the faithful Esther and Mordecai and the, and the foe, Haman. He's preserving this nation from which his promised Messiah would come. And all along the way, destroying any threat to his redemptive purpose and plan. Remember, it was just last night, just last night that the king couldn't sleep. Uh, the king couldn't sleep. And, and what are the odds that the attendant will turn to the page with Mordecai on it. What are those odds? For context here, the the story of Esther is written over a 10-year period, actually. King Ahasuerus reigned in Persia over a 20-year period. The point is, there were lots of pages in the book of records. Everything was written down. What are the odds that the attendant turns to the page with Mordecai on it? Well, actually, they're pretty good when it comes to God's providence. See, He is in control. This is no coincidence. And not only does the attendant turn there, the king does not doze off. He hears it and he acts. You literally cannot make this stuff up. I had never heard the phrase divine insomnia. I had always considered it satanic insomnia. No, here it is right here. So God is clearly at work behind the scenes. He clearly is. But that doesn't in any way minimize Esther's courageous faith. Her preparation, her planning, her, her wisdom, her subtlety, her words, her risk, her faith really matters. Do you remember when Lloyd stood up here the first week and he had a rope hung up over a pulley? You Remember this? talked about the rope going up into heaven, hanging over a pulley and back down. It's one rope, but when we look at it on earth, it it looks like two. One representing veiled providence, one one representing visible faith, the providence of God, the the actions or the faith of of you and I. You remember this, and we talked about this. We we said that if you hold too fast to to one side of the rope, the, the rope doesn't hold. You just You keep pulling the rope down. If I'm way over here with God's providence and I'm just like, you know what? This is my position. And some of us are like this. I'm gonna sit back and watch God do what what, what he does. Now, there's a part of that that's obviously true, right? God can only do what God can only do. But I'm gonna sit back almost passively and and let God do his thing. My part does not matter near as much as his part. There's some of us like that in the room. It's like, let go and let God. Now, I'm not against the phrase, I don't want to offend anyone, but that can create a sense of passivity, like I'll let go and I'm going to let God, okay? Now, I know God's sovereign. I believe the phrase. It's okay. I'm I just going, that can lead us to that end. Now, the opposite is also true, right? It, it, it is that, that we can rely too much on our actions. That's what's visible, physical in the world. This is where I tend to go. Uh, if it's going to be, it's going to be me. I, I'm going to go get this done. We can be over here as well, can't we? When what is visible becomes far more important, what I can do becomes far more important than the work that God is doing behind the scenes. Both ends of the rope, absolutely necessary. Now, I want us to think about that in the context of our story today as it relates here. Who is it that brings about this great reversal in the story? Haman dies, Mordecai and Esther live. Who's responsible for that? Is it it Esther? Is it God? Who is it? It's both, right? Yeah, it's, it's both. Both are responsible. God's providence is brought about through the faith of his people. God's invisible hand is made visible through the faithfulness of Esther. See, see, we got to hold both. Esther doesn't have any idea what God is doing. She can't see what God's doing, just like you and me. She faces a difficult circumstance. She, She has no idea that her decisions have immense implications. No idea that she's caught up in extraordinary circumstance. No, no, she is just an ordinary person who's facing a very difficult circumstance and she takes a courageous step of faith. See, so often we tend to think about the characters in the Bible as something more than that. It's not the case. Esther's not the model Christian. Not by any stretch. Esther, when faced with a storm in her life, she... She gets counsel from her uncle Mordecai, who's wise. She, she invites a group of people to pray. She, she makes a decision. In step of faith, she takes a risk, a very courageous risk. See, that's, that's our end of the rope, right? We're holding both, but that, that's our end of the rope. That we would be courageous to speak and act, to, to stand up for truth that we be quick in our humility and in our repentance, that we would demonstrate that, that, that our life would look like we love Jesus Christ more than anything else, that our faith would be visible to others. That's our part, but all the while, trusting that God's hidden hand is at work, doing what only he can do, dependent upon him to deliver us and recognizing that we are never where we are by chance. Never. Veiled providence. Visible faith. Here's the second part of the story I think we need to consider today. This is it. A couple of weeks ago, Rob Sweet said this to us. There's a little bit of Haman in all of us. Sickening, but true and particularly true when it comes to the evidence of and the devastating effects of Haman's pride and ours. I want you to see this in the text. Look at verse six. This is where it begins to show up. Look at verse six again. Esther said, A foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then, keyword, then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. This four-letter word, then, tells us a lot about Haman. It is not until Esther calls him by name that he realizes his life is in the balance. Now, how could that be? How could he have missed the clues? Go, Go back up to verse three and four. How could he have missed this? Queen Esther replied to the king in verse three. I found favor, if it pleases the king, let my life be given, is my petition. And my people is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Who did that? Haman. How does he miss it? Well, I would suggest this I would suggest that he's blinded by his pride until he's looked in the eye and called wicked by the queen. That's what I would suggest. He's caught off guard because he's so caught up in himself. Think about this for a minute. Why is he so mad at Mordecai? Literally, because Mordecai won't bow down. Is there any clearer definition of pride than that? Mordecai won't bow down. I'm mad. That's pride. Flip over to chapter 5 for a minute. I want you to see the extent of Haman's pride in this story. This is almost beyond compare when it comes to pride. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, I'll read four verses. 9. Then Haman went out that day. This is the day after he gets, or the day of the invitation to the banquet. He went out glad and pleased of heart. This is, he went out. Gloating is the best way to understand this here. He went out gloating, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not in this case stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai, pride. Haman controlled himself, verse 10. However, he went to his house and he sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Verse 11, then... Another key word then. Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, pride. The number of his sons, pride. Every instance where the king, every single instance where the king had magnified him, pride. And how he had promoted him above the princes and the servants of the king, pride. Not done yet. Verse 12. Haman also said to this group gathered at his house, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she has prepared, pride. And tomorrow, in case you didn't just hear it when I just said it right now, I'm going to say it again. Tomorrow also I have been invited by her with the king, pride. Verse 13. Yet all of this does not satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Now this is a little bit of an aside, but there's a principle we can't miss right there. Okay, the prideful Person is never satisfied. Is he or she prideful? Person, pride, pride is like greed or lust. It's insatiable. Pride is just the same. We see it here with Haman. Now, now we read this about Haman, and we think, "This is so gross. This is so gross." And and we all, people come to mind for us, maybe. And people that all they talk about is how much they're worth, who they know and how great they've been, what their successes are. It's just like, I can't stand that stuff. You you know why I think we hate it so much? Because there's a little Haman in all of us. See, there's a little bit of Haman's pride in all of us. It comes with the sinful flesh. Here's what I mean. Do you get put out like Haman did, when someone doesn't respond to you the way you think they should, get angry, should be treated one way, should be bowed down to, Haman's case. That's evidence of pride. Watch somebody the other night, this has happened to all of us, not picking on us, but I watched somebody the other night, not a fellowship person, who was at Pueblo Real, that place is packed all the time. He had to wait eight minutes for his table and he was all put out. That's pride. It is. Pride can be very subtle. You know where it shows up in my life. It shows up here. When I, when I compare myself to others, I think it shows up for a lot of us here, maybe all of us. See, when we compare ourselves to others, what are we doing? We're trying to see how we measure up. Well, why don't we want to see how we measure up? Well, we want to see how we stack up so that we can see where we are in the pecking order. See, it's all related to, to pride. The disciples themselves Twelve disciples spent three years with Jesus Christ. They were sitting around at dinner one night. You don't, want to know what they wanted to talk about? Looking at each other, kind of comparing each other. Hey, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest? Not how somebody looks. This is not what somebody's worth. This is like spiritual pride and excess. Like, Jesus, who's your best disciple? Man, it's gross. It's pride, isn't it? Two things happen to me when I compare myself to someone else. Either I feel like I stack up pretty good, kind of look down on someone, so that's obviously pride. Or or I I don't think I stack up very well at all. I feel inadequate standing next to someone, and you know what that is? That's just pride hurt, right? See, both are centered in pride. Both come from a place, every every time we think, maybe not every, but most of the time when when I think, oh, poor guy, or all poor me, you know what I'm accessing? Deep, Pride, way down in the recesses of my heart—that's where that comparison stuff goes. Let me ask you this: when, when was the last time you sincerely repented to someone? When was the last time? Why don't you think about it? When was it? Was it earlier today? Was it this weekend? Last week? It'd been a month or so? When, when was the last time you sincerely repented to someone? Okay, you got that? When was the last time you sinned? Is there? Is there any correlation? Is there much correlation? Those things that go together very often? Whew. That one hits, hits deep, at least in me. That's pride. If you say you don't have it, I would suggest it actually means you do. It's probably the most deceptive of all sins. It's probably the sin underneath all sins. It's the reason that an angel could fall from heaven an angel of the Lord could fall from heaven. We now know him as Satan, our enemy. It's the reason that our culture values individual independence above all else. I will be who I want to be. Whatever gender I determine that to be. I will act the way that I want to act. I will believe whatever I want to believe. Our cultural values pride above all else. It does. Problem with pride is this. It can't be scrubbed away. Can't get it off us. Can't be behaved away. Can't be willed away, but we can't do it. Any any thinking that we can, we can do that on our own. We can just go fix that is just more pride, right? We can't fix it. Pride is the ultimate hard issue and it will only lead to death. Haman's pride cost him his life and it cost us ours. That's the irrevocable law of God. Romans chapter three, all of sin and the wages of sin is death. It's just true. But there is good news, isn't there? God didn't send another edict to us. No, he sent his only son that whosoever might believe in him will not die, but will have everlasting life, will live. See, th- this is the greatest reversal ever. The greatest exchange ever made. This, uh, this is the God who became man, who was hung on a tree. Only in this case, it was good for evil, not evil for good, as we have in Esther. A great exchange, his life for my sin person of Jesus Christ who was born on this earth to a virgin named Mary who lived on this earth, who lived a perfect life on this earth, who was perfectly righteous in every way, who never allowed his, his, he didn't have it. didn't allow pride to stand in his way. He, he was humble, Full humility, in fact, that's what Philippians 2 said, that he in full humility took on flesh that he might come to us. He lives this righteous life that none of us could ever live. No one who's ever walked the planet or will could ever live. He walks on this planet perfectly righteous. He sets his face on Jerusalem knowing that he's going there to die, to die for our sin, for you and me. And so he gets up on a tree and he hangs and he dies. He's buried in the ground because he's dead. He's in the ground three days. And after the third day, he is raised from the grave. He lives, proving victory and power over sin and death forever. And he looks at you and I and he says, you don't have to die anymore. See, even for Esther, she staved off death for a while. but The, the Jews are, are going to be right back facing death in just a matter of decades just like us. No, this this is the one who came and solved our problem once and for all. This is the one who came that we might live. And and, and I want to give you this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to place your trust in Jesus Christ, to not die, but live. See, I I know this is true every weekend. There's so many here that that have never heard the gospel presented in that way. It's just true. You don't think it's true in the South. You don't think it's true in Nashville. It is true all the time because we have the conversations. It's true. I want to give you the opportunity to to believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and place your trust in him and in him alone for your salvation. There are others of us in the room who have grown up around it or we've heard this gospel that that just means good news. We've heard this good news before. Maybe we even, there's some mental assent to it. Like, yeah, 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 I believe that. But, But we've never actually placed our trust in him. We've never actually said, you know what, I'm going to stake my claim on that. I'm going to stake my Life on that being true. And I want to invite you this morning to to trust him. I do. In in fact, I'm going to plead with you just for a minute. Don't die. Don't die. Live. Experience the joy and the peace and the hope of relationship with Jesus Christ right now and for eternity to come. I'm going to pray, and, and you can just make the words of my prayer yours, however you want. I'm going to lead us in this, what it looks like to place your trust in Christ. And if you've already placed your trust in Christ, which I know many of us have, I'm going to invite you to just to come to the foot of the cross as well and own whatever you need to own and recognize the burden that Jesus Christ bore for your pride and for your sins. So let's pray together, okay? God, we stand, we we sit here before you this morning, wrestling with your truth. And uh, I say before you today that that even as we confessed earlier, I I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he was uh, born of a woman on this earth, that he lived and he died for me. I want to place my trust in him. And I do do that by confessing my own independence and rebellion against you, my own sin. And I I believe that he is who he says he is, that he's done what he says he has done and that he lives and I want to live. So I place my trust in him and him alone for my salvation. I, I confess before you the things that that are sin in my life, recognizing that I I won't change overnight, but trusting you to change me over time. And I taste this morning of your forgiveness. Thank you for loving me and thank you for setting me free. And it's in Jesus, my Savior's name, I pray, amen. If you trusted Christ, I'm not gonna embarrass you, don't worry. If you trusted Christ, I, I am gonna encourage you to tell somebody you know that's a Christian. Tell me that you did and ask them what to do next. And I will pray that they'll have the maturity to either lead you to someone who knows or, or tell you themselves. You know, we stood up here this morning holding the tension between the providence of God that he is sovereign and in control and our part that we are faithful to him. And I believe when we hold both ends of that rope well, God gives us eyes to see the true and better Jesus Christ our Savior, and our Lord. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.